All right, if you can turn to Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 12 through 16 today. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us, be, let us hold true to what we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, bowing before you in reverence opens us to us the door of wisdom, which results in obedience, joy, and delight. And so uh, grant us this great gift this morning. Humble our hearts before your word that we might receive your word not simply as the word of men or women, but as yours. Help us to understand your word. Help us to shape our lives by your word as you renew our minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to be good at anything, there are certain things that are necessary. Whether it's learning to play an instrument... Uh, learning a new skill, learning to play a sport, learning a job, there are things that are necessary. One is knowledge, which increases over time. Uh, Two is practice. But there's another that often gets overlooked, and that is zeal. Because if you don't care about something, you're not going to want to master it. Zeal. Zeal can be very positive, but zeal can also be quite negative. There is a dangerous side to zeal. We see that uh, religiously. We see that particularly within the life of Paul. It was, as he says, on account of zeal, Paul persecuted the church. And we see religious zeal responsible for a number of evils. And I say this in terms of false religious zeal, not proper religious zeal, just to be clear. We see uh, political zeal often destroying communities and countries as well. Zeal can be a very dangerous thing. And yet, we are to also be marked by zeal for the right things. This is a passage a lot of, that is almost exclusively about zeal, the right kind of zeal. As we look at these uh, four verse, five verses, uh, I want us to start with sort of a question that emerges that, that, that I think Paul is sort of wrestling with, uh, not so much for himself, uh, but for the Philippian church to which he writes, although it's true about Paul as well. And there's that question of, of, am I still a Christian if I haven't gotten my life altogether yet? 
Certainly this is a pertinent question for all of us. Am I still a Christian if I haven't gotten it all together yet? We remember what we looked at last week. We saw this dynamic that took place of faith, meaning that God then gives us the righteousness or the obedience of Jesus Christ as if it were our very own so that we're accepted by God. But we see also that Paul talks about knowing Christ and knowing the power of His resurrection, which results in suffering so that He might attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so we see this glorious vision of the Christian experience And we might think, upon reading that, that Paul thinks he's got it all together. That everything has coalesced in Paul's life and he has no ultimate problems except for that suffering thing that we just talked about. But other than that, everything everything is pretty good. But Paul wants the Philippians to understand something and therefore he wants you to understand something is that Paul has not arrived. Paul is not the perfect Christian poster child. You know, you want to know what the perfect Christian looks like, the perfect man looks like? There's the Apostle Paul. He's not saying that in any way, shape, or form. He says instead, not that I have obtained this or am already perfect. Paul is saying that I'm still on this side of the bodily resurrection. I haven't, I haven't ta- attained it yet. I haven't entered into glory. I haven't entered into perfection. And one way we could understand this is I still struggle. And therefore, Paul would say, you Philippians still struggle. And you Desert Springs folks still struggle. Paul was still in process. Paul. I know we tend to look up to these guys. We tend to not see their faults, but if you lived with Paul, I'm sure you would see faults plenty. Don't worry. Sometimes we can confuse conversion with perfection, and Paul wants to remind them that our conversion does not mean that we have somehow crossed a line into perfection, that, that this thing we call sanctification becoming more and more like Jesus, that thing is still incomplete on this side of the resurrection. We see this testimony in Scripture. We read about it in Hebrews 12. The sin that so easily entangles us. We are not immune from being entangled in sin because we know Jesus. Not only that, we see James 3, for instance, where James says, we all stumble in many ways. All. Many. The all pertains to who and the many are the ways. And so each of us in this room will stumble, does stumble, and we do in a variety of ways, not just in one way. And if you're not sure of the ways you stumble, ask the person who lives with you. I'm sure they might be able to share a couple with you. Now, the reality of this ongoing sinfulness is also expressed in our confessional documents. 
For instance, in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 13, which deals um, with sanctification, in paragraph 2 it says, This sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And so the Westminster Confession brings up the reality that Paul expresses in Galatians chapter 5. There is this internal struggle, this internal war, because you still have a remnant of sin within you that resists the truth, that resists obedience, and actually prompts disobedience. We see it as well in the Heidelberg Catechism, following the section on the law. It says, but can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? And the answer to question 114 is no. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of disobedience. Even the best of you have a small beginning in this obedience. Nevertheless, it continues, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but all of the commandments of God. Now, it's one thing to read it in a theological statement. It's another thing to find yourself having done it again. Having committed the sin or sins that seem to plague you, no matter where you go, to have lost your temper again, to have gossiped again, and the list could go on. Ongoing sinfulness can lead in many of us to a great discouragement and a great despair as though the gospel isn't true. We're tempted to kind of give up because we have um, not realized that God's purpose for us in this life is not perfection. Not sure why. I wish it was. But part of this, I think, reveals the patience of God. A patience which we often lack with ourselves and with others. I can remember the golden oldie days that some of you can't remember, but some of you can, when you had to reheat leftovers on the stove. <laughs> right? So I remember, I remember my mom putting a little water in that pan. I always hated that because it watered down the flavor. Okay? But the worst part of it was waiting. Waiting for that leftover to heat so I could eat it. Because I'm someone who likes my leftovers, as my wife will testify, hot. I don't like cold leftovers, lukewarm leftovers. No, I want hot leftovers. Lo and behold, the advent of the microwave and its popularity. I mean, here at the church, ours doesn't work anymore. But, uh, you know, when one works right, one minute and you have hot leftovers. And you know what my heart has done to that? I can't even wait 60 seconds. 
Same thing with my water for my tea. Uh, you know, at home, I wait for the kettle to work, and it seems interminable. I have five minutes. Oh, my goodness. It's forever, right? I, I hear three minutes on the microwave because my mug is so big. It seems to take a lifetime. We're so impatient, not just with water and leftovers, but really we're impatient with people and ourselves. Why can't they just figure that out? Why can't I just figure that out? Now, instead of giving up, Paul says, I press on. Now, what's really interesting about this word, press on, when you see what it is in Greek, is it's the same word for persecute. It's just a different context and therefore a different part of the semantic range. It was, it's connected to his zeal. His zeal has been redirected from persecuting to pressing on. Remember, from persecuting Jesus to pressing on into Jesus would be perhaps another way of, of putting it. But it's, it's still this, this idea of running something. And first he was running to ground. That's the idea of persecution. You're chasing somebody. Okay? You're making them run away from you, and it's not a game of tag. But you intend ill for them. And so uh, he used to run Christians to the ground like they were deer. But now he is running hard to make maturity and the resurrection his own. He's still a zealous person, but the object and purpose of his zeal has shifted dramatically because of his conversion to Jesus Christ. But here's the question. Why does he press on? Why does he run so hard? He makes it plain here. Because... Christ Jesus has made me his own. And I'm not really sure about that whole translation because it loses something. Paul says, why am I laying hold of this? Because Jesus has laid hold of me. It's, he uses the same word. His Movement forward is because Jesus has grabbed him and pulls him forward. And so the zeal that a Christian experiences is not one that he produces himself, but really ultimately it's one that is given to him or her. Jesus has grabbed or laid hold of us so that we might grab or lay a hold of the resurrection. Our zeal is really only a response to the zeal that Jesus exhibited in His incarnation and His obedience and His suffering upon the cross and His resurrection from the dead. That's zeal because Jesus is seeing something horrible through to the bitter end. And it's only the zeal of Jesus that accomplishes that. And the zeal of Jesus, when we realize it, is what feeds, becomes a fountain for our zeal. And so this good news of being forgiven for our sin, this good news of being adopted as His children, this good news that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us so that we are united to Jesus Christ, all of this good news is meant to bubble up 
in zeal within us. And so if your zeal is lacking, perhaps it's because your grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ has waned. You've, you've stopped focusing your eyes on Jesus and you've begun to look elsewhere and be distracted by those things. And so ultimately we should say that we have gospel zeal because Jesus has taken us for his very own. But there's another question that comes to my mind as I work through this text, and that is, but what about all my baggage? Both positive and negative. Remember the baggage that Paul talked about, his advantages and his accomplishments. What what about those things? How do they play into all of this? And Paul kind of gets back to this, he repeats this again. I do not consider that I have made it my own, referring again to this resurrection. But Paul is making an honest assessment about himself. He sees himself as he is, not as he wants to be, or not as he fears that he is. You see, as we think about ourselves, pride usually drives us to magnify our progress in the faith. We think we've come farther in the walk of faith than than we really have. But the flip side of that coin is fear, which minimizes the progress that we have made in the faith. I want Paul to remind us that no Christians have arrived. And because of that, we can also say with full honesty and and no churches have arrived. Uh, Just as individual Christians need to be sanctified or changed and made more like Jesus, so each church needs to continue to be sanctified, changed, and made more like the bride of Jesus. And remember, Paul is writing to the church, not just individuals. All, in other words, must press on like Paul is pressing on, but how do we do this with all this baggage? Paul says one thing and means two. The first part of what he says in that one thing is forgetting what lies behind. Now, that word forgetting is kind of interesting. When we think of, uh, in Scripture, the word remember the flip side of forgetting. The word remember is not often not used in terms of, oh, I forgot that, but now I remember it. But remember is often used in terms of God remembered his covenant, which means he's about to act. Okay, And so the, the forgetfulness part is not so much putting it out of mind, but, but now choosing not to act upon. Another way uh, that, that this can be translated that kind of gets at that idea is no longer caring for. And so you're not acting on, you're not caring for your advantages and your accomplishments. That those are not the basis for your zeal anymore. 
Those are not the basis for how you understand yourself anymore. They're not what's driving you. But Paul remembers that some of that, what he once understood as an advantage is now a disadvantage. And so we could also say that we're not supposed to um, act on, uh, we're not supposed to um, care for our disadvantages. Remember, he now sees this persecution as sin. But Paul no, no, now forgets and no longer cares about his profound failures in the past. And don't we all have those? Paul has faced his past. He's, he's been honest about his past. He's repented of his past. And if you don't repent of your past, then your past will continue to haunt you in the present. And so Paul's not talking about denial, but Paul is talking about dealing with it so that it no longer chases after you, follows after you. Let go of your baggage. He's advocating not being chained to the past and therefore allowing it to limit you. So as I was on the treadmill yesterday, I thought of the movie The Mission, and I watched the sequence from that movie, and I put it on our Facebook page. You can go back and you can see this. And Rodrigo, who was a conquistador, uh, had, in, had gotten into a fight with his brother over a woman and had killed his brother. And so Rodrigo was grieved over this and decided to become a Jesuit, to leave behind his privilege and, and accomplishments within the military and become a Jesuit. And there's this one scene uh, that he's, he's climbing up a waterfall, and my kids can probably understand, uh, understand this or relate to this, because a few years ago we climbed up uh, a bunch of waterfalls in New York, and it was muddy because it had been raining a lot. Well, that's what it was here. There's all kinds of mud that's on this trail that he's climbing. But the problem is, is that there's a rope tied around him, and this rope leads to this, this, uh, this webbed... Uh, bag, basically, that contains his armor and his weapons. His past is attached to him. And he's trying to climb up this waterfall along this path, and his, and this baggage keeps getting snared in the rocks, snared in the sticks and the branches, and impeding his progress. So he doesn't only have to contend with the mud, but he's contending with this, this downward pull from his armor from his past. And he struggles and he keeps falling and failing. And then we see that he's been struggling for 10 days to climb this waterfall precisely because he was trying to do it while remembering his past. I think that is a vivid image for so many of us because we are hampered by our past. We don't believe God has really forgiven us. We haven't really forgiven those who've harmed us. And these things weigh us down and prevent us from going where we want to go. You see, the gospel is more powerful than your past however glorious it might be or however gory it might be. 
And by that I mean your past. Don't feel trapped by what lies behind, but forget what lies behind. We are intended instead to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3. Or as Paul says here, straining forward to what lies ahead. More race imagery, more running imagery. It's this, the, it's this picture of the person who, who sees the goal line and is not like, oh, wow, I'm almost there. Isn't that great? But no, it's kind of straining. This is the final stretch. This is the, the you know, moving towards victory. Uh, more. Giving everything that's left to go ahead. Instead of looking back. We watched the end of season two of uh, Stranger Things this week. Or I watched it with the kids. And I'm reminded of uh, the scene where Bob the Brain is being chased by the Demogorg, Demogorgon. And Bob does what all of us would do. He looks back. Is it gaining? Well, of course, because you keep looking back. <laughs> We're to, we are to stop looking back and to keep our eyes on where we're supposed to be going so that all of our energy is focused there and not torn there. This is the the idea that Paul wants them to understand. And because Paul is forgetting what's behind and straining forward for what lies ahead, he says again, for the third time, I think it is, I press on toward the goal of the prize. Paul is zealous for the finish line. Paul is zealous for the gold medal, so to speak. You can almost hear Paul saying what Eric Little said. When I run, I feel his pleasure. Paul is feeling the pleasure pleasure of his father as he runs, not physically, but metaphorically. He feels that pleasure. That's part of why I think Paul uses that running illustration in 1 Corinthians 9, as we read earlier, and and the author of Hebrews kind of points that out as well in, uh, in Hebrews 12. What we recognize with the author of Hebrews uh, earlier in chapter 11, verse 6, he said, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And here's the key phrase I want us to get. And that he rewards those who seek him. We forget about that. That's not earning our salvation. But at the end of the race, we, we talk about the crown of righteousness and the, the crown of life and, and those sorts of things. There is a prize that goes to those who finish the race. It's, it's not a, simply a participation prize. There's a reward. And there, there's a reward for all of our zeal. Whatever you're seeking, there is a reward, reward for it. But when we seek the wrong things, we get the wrong reward. If you're seeking wealth, 
Okay? If you're exerting yourself for wealth or for that promotion, what you get in return is temporary, transitory, and decaying. But what Paul is wanting them and us to understand is that the reward we get is Jesus Himself, who is eternal and unchanging. Your zeal is measured, or the the greatness of your zeal, the goodness of your zeal is measured by what you are zealous for. We seek only what promises reward. And our reward in the gospel is Jesus himself. And so gospel zeal kind of strains ahead. It strains towards the goal. And and our our particular straining will be shaped by our circumstances, uh, not by Paul's circumstances. This is not a call for you to become a church planter that goes throughout um, the Aegean, the area of the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor and Greece and uh, then Italy. That's it, that's not. Your straining will will be done within the context of God's additional call upon your life. It may be as a son or daughter who's in school right now. And so your straining and zeal for Jesus is done within those limitations and blessings of school. Okay. It could be stay-at-home mom. You don't forsake being a stay-at-home mom because of the zeal of the gospel, but you seek to please God in the midst of that. If you're a work-outside-the-home mom, it's the same thing. Or a work-outside-the-home dad, it's the same thing. It's remembering that whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whether you're an engineer, a maintenance man, an accountant, a pastor... We're intended to do it for the glory of God. Now, why did Paul run? He says he ran because of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? This is not something Paul chose for himself, but we recognize it's sort of like the, the price is right. Come on up. Paul has been summoned by God in Christ Jesus. And so it's a gracious call that Paul has experienced that motivates his zeal. And so, gospel zeal values the call and reward of God in Christ. It's another kind of question that seems to, that Paul seems to be answering as he continues in this. Um, I've made good progress. Isn't that enough? There seems to be some irony that's at play here because he's using the same word that he says, I'm not perfect or mature. And then he says, let those who are mature think this way. Or let those who are perfect think this way. So there's a little bit of irony. In other words, we need to renew our minds to mature. And mature minds will realize they haven't arrived. Maturity includes this honest assessment of ourselves. It, it's, it's how far you've, got, you've come and how far you have to go. I, I 
I've mentioned this before, and I'm going to mention it again, but the first time we visited our my, my parents after we got married, and, my, and Amy had not had a whole lot of experience with my parents. She'd only met them like twice. And she probably should have done due diligence on that. <laughs> but we get to my parents' house, and uh, we're setting things up and, you know, just kind of getting settled within my parents' place. And that's when they were bickering and I kind of leaned, I forgot to tell you, they're like, kind of like the Costanzas. But Amy's response was, it's good for me to remember how far you've come. Because we see a person as they are and sometimes we forget how far God has brought them and we're not thankful, we're just upset because they're not over here. And I, as a parent, have to remember that all the time. And you who are parents have to remember that all the time. We need to be thankful for the, the progress that God has already given, even as we anticipate and desire the progress that has not yet come. Rejoice in how far God has brought you, but don't rest secure as if you've gone far enough. He anticipates that not all are going to agree with him on this assessment. And he says that if you disagree, God will reveal that to you also. God will take care of this. Paul does not feel like he has to, you know, argue with them, I guess, is the point. Principled Christians can disagree on some finer things. Paul is not condemning them, but he's trusting God to work it out. Sometimes we don't trust God to work things out. We think we have to work it out, both as parents and uh, in other parts of our lives. Perhaps he was seeing already how this um, perspective of accomplishments and advantages has begun to uh, create strife within the church in Philippi. I'm not sure. But Paul kind of ends this paragraph with this idea, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Uh, kind of how I walk through this is sort of to stop pressing on is in a sense to fall back because there is no status quo. It changes all the time. He's he's begging them to at least maintain to maintain what they've already attained to to practice uh, what they have already learned. Okay, and it's just like anything you've mastered. You have to practice to maintain skills. I was listening to an interview with Nita Strauss the other day. For those of you who don't know Nita Strauss, which is probably, I think, all but maybe two of you in this room, um, <laughs> she's a guitarist. Okay, and she plays for Alice Cooper's band. Okay, and in it, she confesses, uh, so to speak, um, because she didn't do proper stretching. Um, she struggles with carpal tunnel syndrome, so she can only play two hours a day. Okay. So what that means is, for the last two years prior to this interview, uh, she'd been on tour with the band, and so that basically, the warm-up and the concert takes up her two hours. And she says, my skill as a guitarist has decreased. 
because she doesn't have the time to practice things, and there are certain things she can't do anymore because she hasn't continued to practice them, and she hasn't improved her craft because she hasn't had the time to learn new things. And so we need to press on even to maintain that which we have spiritually. Live the theology you have. Put that theology into practice. And as you learn more, you will implement more. Paul wants them to stay in line, not stay in their own lane. Okay? But he wants them to to stay in line, to keep moving forward in the faith. So when we think about if I've made good progress, isn't that enough? We recognize that gospel zeal leads us to rejoice but not rest in that progress. Gospel zeal keeps us moving so that we at the very least maintain what we've attained. So to wrap this thing up, gospel zeal could be understood as Jesus' zeal for us And our salvation produces our zeal for Christ and his salvation. And that's what Paul's getting at. Because you have experienced the zeal of Christ for your salvation, you now experience a zeal for Christ. Zeal is often destructive when it's tied to the wrong thing. When we're persecuting others rather than pressing on to the high call of God for which Jesus laid hold of us. Zeal is often robbed by guilt over our past, our sin. It's often robbed by pride over our past accomplishment. And so we we really need to live in an awareness that we haven't finished the race, but the race isn't over. And in the difficult times, recall that Christ is our righteousness before the Father, that we're, we're fully forgiven for our disobedience, that, that we've been fully adopted, not partially adopted, and therefore we can't be rejected. We need to call to mind that we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and allow these gospel truths to well up within us in greater gospel zeal. Because no gospel partnership can persevere without gospel zeal. Let's pray. Father, it's easy for us to feel tired, not zealous. It's easy for us to feel kind of worn out to wonder if we have anything kind of left in the tank. It's easy for us to feel overwhelmed by the sin that kind of trails behind us in our wake. Father, I ask that your spirit would be at work in us so that we would see how the gospel addresses those problems. How Jesus comes to us in our weariness, in our guilt, in our fear and even in our pride 
and offers us a better way. We ask that you would be at work so that we would have um, zeal, that we would have hearts for you and for the gospel. That we would realize that we've been a grab to hold of, that Jesus has made us his own, that you have issued a call and we've responded. And may we love it. So help us to press on, even if we're weary. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.